This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 9 of Analyzing Anfield. This is part of your Blood Red podcast channel. This is the podcast that you need for all the tactical analysis, statistical analysis possible around Liverpool Football Club. I am your host as always, Christian Walsh, and with me as always is Josh Williams. Josh, how have you been? I've been good, but a little bit depressed based on the results that we've seen lately. Hopefully, I mean, we hope for better results, didn't we, but just didn't go that way well that's that's the thing isn't it in terms of you know you say about the way results have gone Liverpool uh, nine straight wins in the in the Premier League um, into the Champions League semi-finals and yeah that niggling feeling of what Manchester City have been doing for the past 11 games just just won't leave us yeah well when I say results there I should have probably clarified from a City perspective yeah. because Liverpool are winning every game but we're at that stage of the season now where you're looking at who you're surrounded by and unfortunately we're just behind one of the best teams ever, so it's frustrating. Still three games to go. We will talk about the title race in general uh, later on in the show. First, we will look back at Cardiff. Easter Sunday, sunshine. Uh, I had a fantastic day down there, I must admit. Lovely little stop off in Monmouth. Lovely village, about 20 minutes outside of the uh, Cardiff City Stadium. Uh, but let's talk about what happened on the pitch, Josh. Um, first of all, want to celebrate the greatest performance of all time. Uh, 100% passing accuracy. One out of one aerial duel won. So well done to Fabinho. Um, absolutely immaculate when he came on for his four minutes. Uh, seriously, though, um, you know we hope that he will be fit for, if not Huddersfield, because he probably won't need them for then. Then he's certainly fit for the Barcelona game. Um, let's start then with you know the first half. I found it a bit of a strange first half. Um, the way chances created, namely Firmino and Salah, uh, those two basically equaled out to an XG of around just under one at half time. Um, what what did you make of it? How how Liverpool started? It was you know was it cagey? Was it was it always comfortable? How did you see it? I perceived it as a decent start. I uh, I thought we were relatively comfortable um, because kind of consistent problems. We seem to be dragging them all over the place because Neil Warnock's obviously very man mark focused. Um, so uh, if you know that about the opposing team you can then use your fluidity in a way to just basically disorganise them, and that's what we were consistently doing. Um, as you say, we got clear-cut chances, but for the, the one thing I did find weird was just we, we just seemed incapable of hitting the targets, never mind finishing. Um, I'm not sure what that stemmed from, just slacking really, but other than that, I thought the general performance was, was quite good overall. I, I think in the first half, we were lucky not to go in with a lead. And... Um, I think about 25 minutes into the fixture, I did think to myself that something should eventually come here, something should eventually give, and uh, you know, eventually it did so. Uh, last week I had a little look at, there's two types of ways of playing Cardiff um, in terms of pressing them, and you know, I found it very interesting in the way that City and Tottenham um, and Watford, three teams who absolutely hammered um, Cardiff away from home, they all opted to sort of press a little bit less. Now, that, that might be because, look, they, they had the game wrapped up, if not by an hour, then half an hour. Um, but did you notice any difference in the way Liverpool, you know, pressed? Did, did, because against Chelsea, it was probably the best pressing performance of the season. But did you did you notice anything in terms of the pressing against Cardiff on Sunday? Um, I didn't notice anything specific. I know it was... Standard counter pressing, I suppose. Mm. Um, but the actual PPDA that we go on about on this show passes per defensive action. Yeah, um, I didn't actually check. I checked it in in Cardiff's mm. um, aspect. So from a Cardiff perspective, at least, um, they were very passive compared to the rest of the season. They're known as quite a in your face side and a bit of an aggressive team and stuff like that. But they showed us a fair amount of respect. Um, 26.9 passes per wow. defensive action so you know we're making 27 passes basically before they're trying to engage with the ball uh, which is a lot um, they, were, they were at the most aggressive right before half time and right before full time uh, it dropped down to about 17 around those phases uh, but that's that's still a fair amount a fair amount to, um, to allow and the, the, they've only been more passive three times this season 
both occasions against City and the occasion against Liverpool at Anfield. So, evidently, Liverpool and City, they obviously show a lot of respect to. And rather than trying to seek the ball and be proactive about it, they instead prefer to keep the shape out of fear of getting opened up, I suppose. Um, but, you know, regardless of that, we still managed to, as I said, just disorganise them through our movements. I think their man marking, I think they struggled with it. I think it, it, it does better than the likes of the Championship, that kind of approach. Is that because players are um, technical enough to get away from them? They're not tactically intelligent enough to, to move into the space. It's kind of, it, it's it's a literal man versus man and the better man will win. And, you know, if you've got the better men or the, the men with more aggression, more fights, then, then then you'll probably prosper. Yeah, that comes into to an extent, but I think it'll, it'll also stem from the higher up you go in terms of managers, I suppose, to the likes of Klopp and Guardiola. I think, the more those coaches become reliant on, on space um, and just controlling zones, if you like, rather than being man-focused. Um, and I just think it's more of a more of an advanced way of playing, almost. Um, and I think I think Cardiff suffered from it, really. So we go in at half-time. I like you, Josh. I, I, you know, there was a little bit of nerves, I suppose, at nil-nil, but you're thinking... Only a set piece is really going to undo Liverpool here, and if they keep on creating the chances and finding the space, and, and lo and behold, nine minutes into the second half, uh, we get Genie Van Alden, and we get some end product. We get something that we can talk about tangibly. Um, you know, it, I found it interesting. Obviously, after the game, it emerged that this move was concocted during half time because they noticed uh, there was space on the edge of the box. So, you know, did you find it quite interesting that Van Alden was the man chosen to kind of? be the ones to rifle at home because, you know, we sort of say, well, what, you know, tangibly, what does he do well? Um, well, he's clearly got a decent shot on him from 14 yards and, and he and he hits really, really crisply. Yeah, I'm not too sure why Wijnaldum was specifically chosen, to be honest. I'm not even sure if he was specifically chosen. I think he, he just ended up in that zone um, each time and gradually realised that he was a, a, a means of exploitation there and... Um, yeah, it was. I mean, we, we, when we talk about Wijnaldum having a lack of measurable output, we also m- mentioned that it could stem from, you know, while he's playing the game, he's constantly thinking and he's constantly assessing situations, thinking from a tactical perspective. And this would back that up to an extent mm-hmm. because he's obviously picked something out there that, um, that a manager usually would pick out. Uh, so it's it's impressive for him to notice such a thing, and you know, Trent's delivery is obviously. He's obviously known for that. Um, he put the ball on the plate for Wijnaldum and, well, not on the plate, it was still a difficult finish yeah. and he, fair play to him. It's an absolutely superb finish um, and it got us the breakthrough. Just sticking with Wijnaldum and a little bit of uh, Jordan Henderson here, you know, Wijnaldum actually emerged again as the number six. We haven't really seen that from, from Wijnaldum since the, the earlier part of the campaign. Um, and then Henderson favour forward, so it was the, I think it was probably the first time uh, those two have been on the pitch at the same time and, and, and Wijnaldum has been utilised as the six and Henderson as, as the eight. Um, were you surprised by that? I mean, is this the structure now? Is, is Wijnaldum sort of the, the number two, number six, so to speak? The, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the deputy to Fabinho and, it, and is Henderson now sort of a number eight? We talk about tactical versatility and how Klopp likes plays to play in different Positions, so you know. Is it again? We said this a lot. Horses for courses. W- w- what's it all about? I think it would have surprised me a couple of weeks back, but since Henderson's moved forward into this number eight position, I think it's it wasn't really much of a surprise when I saw the teams. I did think Wijnaldum would be the six. A lot of people were talking about it, and it stems from the opponents as well. We, we were against the team that we were going to dominate the ball against. Uh, we were against the team that we needed control against. And that's why Wijnaldum offers, Wijnaldum offers, you know, safety, caution, um, composure and stuff like that. Whereas Henderson offers, you know, aggression, um, turnovers and stuff like that, which is useful against certain opponents, but not inferior opponents that you're going to dominate. So Wijnaldum as a six in this situation made sense. And we, we talked a couple of weeks ago as well about lacking that player who can come on at the end of a match and kill it with the ball like a pass master. And you suggested at the time that Wijnaldum could possibly be that. 
And at the time, I did realise that, you know what, he's probably, he probably is the closest we've got to that in terms of that safe passes that doesn't give the ball away. I think, again, um, he was he was top in terms of, of excluding Fabinho with his 100%. Uh, I think he was top in terms of pass accuracy. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise possibly me. Possibly Matipo or possibly Wijnaldum. Certainly top two. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't surprise me because he, he seems to uh, post good numbers in that figure virtually every week. Um, but, yeah, he's able to just provide that element of control, uh, composure and basically dictate the tempo to an extent. And obviously we mentioned as well about Henderson having a you know a detrimental impact on the opposing team's organisation and defence just by, just through his run. I thought this was probably the least influential he's been since being in this number eight role. Uh, but, you know, st- still, I, I was happy with the dynamic of it. I, I was happy with Ryan Aldham as the six, Henderson as the eight. Um, against these types of teams, that's something we can definitely, definitely keep doing. You mentioned his run. I, I agree in terms of it. You know, we've seen him get rewarded for those sorts of late bursts into the box, just being, just generally busy in the opposition's eighteen-yard box. But something I did pick up on was the amount of passes Henderson made in the game, and that was seventy-four. Um, second behind um, Joel Matip, uh, who was who was uh, the leader in that in that particular metric, but. It, it's not normal, is it, for a number eight to, to pass that much? And, you know, he obviously put the ball in for Salah in the uh, first half, the one where um, Efridge denies him at the near post. But you know, it, it, is this another string to Henderson's bow? Because he spent so much of the past two, three years as a passer, you know, he can play as sort of an advanced passer and an advanced midfielder and, and still pass the ball, you know, 74 times. Yeah, uh, that, this is something we've mentioned in the past regarding Henderson because he's, um, he's always posted good pass, pass numbers in terms of a pass count. You know, not, not not looking at things like whether they're forwards or whether they're accurate or whether they're through, just in terms of getting on the ball and getting touches. You know, Henderson's right up there and um, he, he usually does well with uh, my player radars that I've been posting every now and then because the, you know, the gold standard in terms of passes made per 90 over the course of a season, not many players tend to make say, over 80 passes per 90 as a season average. I think Henderson's average is about 77. So, you know, he's not known as, as being like a shabby Alonso type or anything like that, but he's he's always had this trait whereby he gets a lot of touches. And I've said before that I, I do think that's a quality. I think if you're playing with top players, even down the, the likes of the, you know, five-a-side pitches or things like that, I think it's a skill to get on the ball. It's a skill to have that authority to get touches and to um, get involved, basically. Henderson always does so. And to be doing so as a number eight, as you say, is is quite unique, yeah? Moving back down the pitch, because, um, you know, the front three had the, the, you know, I don't think any of them was spectacular necessarily. Salah was the pen, obviously. Um, but, you know, we... we in general, the man of the match was uh, Joel Matip. Um, well, on television anyway. Personally, I had no complaints with that. I thought it was, you know, a good performance again. Um, just talk about Matip, just in general, Josh. Not just in terms of uh, Cardiff, but uh, you, you've got a fantastic little quirky. Uh, should we call it a banter stat? I, I, I don't <laughs> think it's a banter stat. I don't think it's one of them. I, I actually think it's pretty. Uh, Pretty useful um, about his ball progression and in terms of how he, how he dribbles. Yeah, well, he's unique. He, he's the definition of unique as a centre-back. Uh, I wrote a piece on him a couple of weeks ago, didn't I? To do with just what he brings from a tactical perspective because he's, as I said, he's different. Um, in terms of what you just mentioned there, progressive runs, we call it. So mm. you can imagine what that is. It's a vertical carry with yeah. the ball at your feet over a you know, short distance, if you like. What Massup does, picture Massup on the ball in defence. Picture him doing those little like, slalom and runs, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, it's like a little trademark of his. But uh, paying 90 in the Premier League this season, progressive runs. Top is Adama Traore, which you'd expect. That's virtually the only strings of his ball, really. I think second was Hazard. Again, ball carrier. Third, Philippe Anderson. Again, what you expect. And then... Fourth, you've got Joel Matip, which is uh, odd to say the least, because you know he's in a group of four there with three really progressive ball carrying attackers, and he's a centre back, so it's it's it is different. Um, and 
he's also he also shows it well in terms of aerial duels too. He he comes across as almost a, a light version of Virgil mm. for me. Um, but his his aerial duel success rate in the Premier League, it's worth mentioning as well that why scouts can be a bit funny with this kind mm. of stuff, but it's vaguely accurate anyway. There's only eleven players in the top five European leagues uh, that have got a better aerial dual success rate than them. When I say bet, only 11 players, 11 centre-backs, sorry. Mm. Only 11 centre-backs in the top five European leagues with a better aerial dual success rate than, than Matip. Um, and that's based on players who have played over 1,500 minutes, um, which at this stage of the season isn't that much. Mm. Fair amount of players covering that. But yeah, he's just a he's really different kind of centre-back, really. He's, very useful on the ball, um, and I think he's he's developed this season on, under. I'm going to say under Virgil. He's not under Virgil, but he's alongside him, isn't he? And he's he's, he's a, a really different option. Just as all about Cardiff game, you mentioned the Aero Gilles there again, 100 percent four out of four. Uh, that's a cold swap. So you know, I, I don't think it's a massively um, you know strange statistic that one um, second best pack, passing accuracy over the 90 minutes um, that's not including 100% Fabinho I think that was Henry. that's um, Wijnaldum yeah so Wijnaldum was first and um, Matip was second uh, 5 out of 7 accurate long balls and 88 passes which was the, the more than any other Liverpool player on the on the, on the the day um, is he underrated? It doesn't get. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like. I, I feel like, and this is maybe where you know analysis can really come in. It, it feels like people think, and I've been guilty of this myself. That he's always got a mistake in him. That he can be easily bullied. That he misjudges the flight of a ball when he's going for a header. All of these sorts of criticisms that are labelled against Matip, but he's been part of a pretty elite defence this season for for you know since December, I'd say. Yeah, I think since he's came in. I'd probably say his his performance has been underrated. Mm. Overall, as a player, I do understand where those criticisms mm. stem from because he's he can look a bit fragile and a bit clumsy, uh, a bit like Bambi on ice mm. almost the way the way he moves sometimes. Saka had a similar trait where you'd feel a bit uncomfortable when he was when he was around the ball, but he's he's got a way about him where he's. He's got control of the ball too, and he's got control of situations too. Although it doesn't always look it, uh, and he's certainly underrated with the ball. I think a lot of people think that when he drives forward with the ball like that, that it's um, a negative thing, and th- that's not. That's a that's a positive in a lot in a lot of moments. Well, it's an extra attacker, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's ultimately yeah. if he's the free man, then you know a, a lot of opposing teams will deliberately allow a centre back a ball. Um, so that there's no other three men on the pitch, really, kind of thing. Uh, but if, if they're allowing Mass up the ball and he then takes that initiative and drives forward with it and almost entices an opponent to press him, thus vacating who they're already marking, that then opens up the play. So he's definitely underrated with the ball. I think his vertical passing as well as, you know, quick drags along the, ball, along the floor, sorry. I think they're underrated. They can open up opponents. Um... And he's certainly above, uh, well above Lovren now. I, I, I had a period where I thought Lovren was in a different lead to, to Massive. But, yeah. um, you know, since he's came in, he's, he's shown a different side to what I, what I was aware of. I was just going to ask you for a ranking, because obviously, you know, one of the bullets is, is Virgil. And then, you know, where do you, it's hard, isn't it, to assess because, you know, Joe Gomez has, has been out for so long. Um, but we can't forget what a fantastic young centre-back he is. Where, where do you rank the four then? So we're going Van Dyke one, Lovren four. Is it is it a case of now two A and two B? I'd have Van Dyke, Gomez, Matrup, Lovren. Mm. Uh, but I'd also say that all four, you know, are now in a position to do a job. I don't feel overly concerned whoever's playing really. You're at oh eight oh nine levels there, aren't you? And the the hippiest skittle Carragher and and uh, Aga. Yeah, I think the system's so good and they get such support that um, we don't seem to, to be overly in problematic situations regardless. 
the only thing with Lovren, and less so with Matip since he's came in, is uh, they do just have a complete random error in the game, which Gomez doesn't have. Uh, Matip seems to have eradicated that to an extent. Lovren will always have that. I think that's just mm. a personal trait of his. But other, other than that, if you took that out of Lovren's game, he'd be a you know a fairly dominant centre back there. Uh, but you know we've got we've got four players there who are capable. It was a good performance in general. You know, defensively there was just one chance for uh, for Cardiff, and well, I suppose there were two. The the, the ass one where a better player might test Allison properly. Uh, but I just want to talk about that that Morrison chance. Um, Understat went with 0.68 on the XG. Um, I think that's probably underplaying it to be honest. It's a, it's a free header from two yards out. Uh, you know what? What I, does that sort of show you the fine margins? And we're gonna you know this will segue into the title race, I think. But does that show you sort of the fine margins where one team can be so much better than the other, but a chance of that quality can present itself somehow against any team? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're at the point now where like the absolute finest margins come into it, and uh, you know you think back across the course of the season. The amount of little tiny influence and factors that have um, that have came into it, but in terms of that chance, you know, there was people mentioning whether, whether Allison actually got a touch on that. The, the slightest touch you can possibly imagine to to just influence the flight of the ball, and he was also people saying that there was people getting up Sean Morrison's interview from a couple of months ago saying he wants Liverpool to win the league, and that it was intentional that he missed it. I'm not sure if I believe that. But it was a very strange miss, and it does tie in with the fact that we've had a, we've had a very not lucky, but we we've made moments of I, fortune. I, yeah, I think you make your own luck to yeah. an extent. I, I'm a believer in that sort of thing, but we we have certainly had things go our way in really decisive moments. For the most part, at least mm. we obviously had certain negative factors too. But for the most part, we've had a a productive season in terms of fortune. So we talk about the title race now in general because I, I just it, uh, I, I, you know it, I, I, if there's any listeners out there who want a you know thirty minute analysis on Huddersfield Town who are relegated gone not playing for Jan Stewart um, you know I do apologise um, I just think it's it's far more beneficial and far more fun to be honest to talk about what's got well fun might be the word to talk about what's going on at the top of the Premier League. Um, so we'll talk on the title race uh, first of all Josh we'll talk about United and City uh, I didn't watch it um, I went on a 10 mile run during the game uh, because I just couldn't bear to watch it um, phoned my friend uh, 10 miles in and said um, I don't want to find out off a you know, live score app so I'm just asking you, to, you know, how's it going do I carry on running what do I do and he just went do you literally score 20 seconds ago so I was like, "All right, that's uh, that, that's the end of that." Then, um, so I didn't watch it. You did, Josh. Uh, what what can we take away from it? Uh, you know, are there any chinks to this armor? Is there still hope for Liverpool? Three games to go, one point of difference. <laughs> I don't like that noise. Um, I think. I mean, going into it, I was unlike yourself going on going on jogs I've been more inclined <laughs> a to run talk. Josh it wasn't a no it wasn't a jog it was very much a, a slow meandering jog I've been more inclined to torture myself over the past couple of months because I seem to miss I seem to watch every city game uh, just with, with the hope that something will happen fed up of watching them they're a great uh, team I, you know I just can't take any joy out of watching them no no I understand that but <laughs> going into it anyway yeah, I, there was a, a majorly negative reaction regarding the starting eleven. That was announced, uh, just because it had not great players, in, to be honest, and that, that's because United haven't got a great squad. It didn't overly concern me because it's not against, against City. It's not overly about naming your best eleven and going for it naively. You've got to have a certain approach, and you've got to have certain profiles. And United seem to have that roughly. Uh, they had the, the tactical plan that Solskjaer imposed was. What I wanted to see, it was the same as the Spurs approach too. Seems to be a bit of a template there to cause City problems. The only issue is the execution in the final third and in the attacking areas was awful. Um, the template that I'm talking about is you, you, you basically play a back five. So then when the likes of Sterling receives the ball in the wide area, Bernardo Silva receives the ball in the wide area, 
Sane receives the ball. You can close them down without a channel opening up behind you. Because if a channel does open up, then one of the two number eights floats into it and just causes you all kinds mm. of problems. Um, so they play the back five, which nullifies that. Then you play a midfield three. Hopefully in that midfield three, you'll have one very capable passer, say in the form of Ericsson or Pogba. And then two mobile, fast, aggressive strikers, really, just to um, immediately take advantage of City when the ball's regained, because obviously they spread out into an expansive shape, so you can immediately cut through them then. Um, and United seemed to have that. They had, they had Pogba in midfield, who could feed Lingard and Rashford in the break. Uh, and they had the back five, albeit consistent of, you know, not very good defenders. Ashley Young's case, he's not a defender full stop. Uh, you know, Damien hasn't played since Christmas. But the the template was there, but... um, And it worked, it, you know, for, uh, for 45 minutes at least. And looking back at the match, City didn't create an awful lot in terms of XG. I think it was... I think it was certainly below one. Uh, it looked around about 0.5 v 0.5 yeah, from a lot it. of the models I've seen. But United in the final third were just awful. And City were a lot fitter. You could see the, if City did lose the ball, they got back into their own shape behind the ball much, much quicker than United did. Um, but obviously the goals came. De Gea had a nightmare. Just our luck as well. But we were talking about luck before, weren't we, that we were getting it all. But in terms of De Gea, he does turn up against us and doesn't or hasn't this season against the uh, City. So it was it was a frustrating watch, but initially United at least offered the template whereby they could possibly get something. So next up for Man City, well, let, let, I suppose let's just deviate from what, what I've written down here because the way you've explained that there in terms of the, the setup of, of teams that can stop City, if not necessarily hurt them. Because let's face it, Liverpool win the last three, which is, you know, by no means... Uh, a given, and we'll talk about that in, in, in a short while. But you know, so let's say f- five man defence. So next up is Sean Dice. He got a one one last season. Uh, they've beaten the reigning champions in the last five campaigns, which is the the most wonderful straw clutching stat I've ever heard. Um, they've got me. They've got Tarkovsky. I think they've got Gibson fit. They've also got what Charlie Taylor, Phil Bardsley. As you say, it's not necessarily about great players, it's, it's about the setup. Are they set up for this? They've got the makeup there for it, but I don't think I don't think they'll do it. Mm. Uh, I don't think Dyke is uh, an advocate of a back five, just based on what you know, looking into the formation. Eight percent. Eight percent, yeah. Eight percent of their minutes this season have been spent in a back five. Um and they've played the likes of Chelsea recently. They've played Spurs recently, they played us. Uh, away, I think it was, they played us at Anfield and they just 4 4 2 every time. Uh, so that doesn't bode too well in a defensive sense. Um, just because, as I said, them, ch- them channels open up. The, the, the one bit of hope that you could see from that is because Deitch is such a, you know, not, not necessarily defensive, but he's all about, you know, graft, endeavour working for your teammates so if the ball does get into the final third the likes of Dwight McNeil on the left flank and Jeff Hendrick on the right flank took in almost as wing backs slash full backs you know Mourinho seemed to fame the whole back six thing Uh, Deitch isn't to that extreme but as I said the the, the wingers if you want to call them that they, they do seem to work back so that'll help in a sense but I think the fact that he's play, the fact that he's probably going to play a back four and a midfield four just doesn't bode too well because if you imagine City's attacking line, uh, you've got Sterling on the far left, then inside that, say for example, Silver, then inside that again, um, Gundogan, then say inside that, um, basically you've got, you've got four attackers stretched across the field mm. and then Aguero ahead of that. That's five attackers. Mm. So if you've then got a back four dealing with five attackers, you're outnumbered. Yep. So 
it causes problems because teams, defenders try and cope with that by, you know, closing down and things like that. But it's like, it's like playing with one last one less man. It's like mm-hmm. playing with 10 men in a, in a defensive sense. But hopefully Deitch will play a back five, but I can't see it. And just when you were reading out sort of what, what the kind of things that City can struggle against, um, or certainly the, the, the type of roles that can that can nullify City's biggest threat. So just just thinking about Leicester there, you still said five at the back. Well, they've, they've got two very good fullbacks who can certainly play as wingbacks. They've got Maguire, they've got Evans, they've got Morgan if you need to, um, or the lad whose name I can't pronounce um, from Freiburg. Um, I know his name. I just can't pronounce it. Not sure. Turkish lag. Oh, lads. I know. Yes. Yeah. So can yeah. you? So there we go. Perfect pronunciation. <laughs> um, I just have the Turkish lag from Freiburg. Um, and you're talking about sorts of fast, you know, sorts of aggressive forwards. Well, there's Jamie, Jamie Vardy for a start. Got someone like Harvey Barnes who who, who can play through the middle. Who, who's capable of doing that? You got Madison. Got Gray. Um, you know, just to hop forward to, to that game, you know, there's no no guarantee again that Liverpool beats Huddersfield and beats Newcastle. But is is it is this Brendan's time? Is are they are they the likeliest team who could maybe set up like that and, and stop them, albeit at the Etihad? Uh, it's difficult to say. <laughs> I think I think Burnley and Leicester have both got roughly the same chance mm. for different reasons. I think if Leicester, if it was at Leicester, I'd say Leicester have got. You know, I'd say they have a better chance than United. Yeah, but to be honest, yeah. yeah. But it was at, it was at Old Trafford though. City had a slightly different, different team away and they've got slightly less control away. Mm. Uh, in 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 Burnley's case, the the positive there is the front two. They they, they play the front two like Poch did with Mora and Son, mm. like um, Solskjaer did with Lingard and Rashford, and the very aggressive, very in your face. Uh, physical as well, so they'll cause issues. It's just whether Burnley can can keep them out, and I, I don't think they can with a back four. Mm. Uh, in Leicester's case, I don't think Rodgers would play a back four, but I think he'd play a midfield. Sorry, I don't think he'd play a, a back five, mm. but I think he'd play a midfield five. Yeah, um, they've been playing four one four one Leicester. So you had Ndidi with Tillemans and Madison ahead yeah. of him. Yeah, but if you move in DD, say five yards forward, that then becomes a bank of five. Mm. See what I mean? It's not, there's not much in that. So Leicester's current system isn't far from being a four-five-one, mm. which is which is, it wouldn't be as um, safe as the as the as the back five would be in terms of defence. But it's that bank of five. City do struggle against bank of five, so at least it off of that, and obviously. You've got Madison, you've got Tillemans in the midfield who can, you know, we were talking earlier about midfield passes in terms of Pogba and Eriksen. Madison and Tillemans can certainly find Vardy and Vardy's got that pace in behind that can that can hopefully cause problems. So I think Burnley and Leicester have both got traits that offer enough hope. Um, it's just a case of City just... Control so many factors mm. in a football match. They've got so much under their own control, more so than any Premier League side I've ever seen. They just control so many aspects on the football pitch that the elements of chance comes into it less against them. The elements of chance can all, always come into football when Liverpool are playing, Arsenal are playing, Chelsea are playing, but because City are so measured. Um, and they have so much of the ball and it's so calculated and planned. robotic, isn't it? Yeah, the, 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 I always say it, it, the top managers are able to um, almost put their image onto their teams. If you look at Liverpool, you know, aggressive, intense, emotional team. If you look at City, control freaks, mm. p- perfectionists, they don't like it when chaos is instigated. Hence why they don't really like playing us or haven't in the past at least. But so many teams allow them that control that they, they, they just cope easily, you know, without breaking a sweat. Uh, it's frustrating to see, but to expect teams to, you know, get in the faces and press them into the ground and stuff like that, it's unrealistic over a 90-minute period. Especially if they don't if they don't do it week in, week out. 
The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Right, so that is the title race. As I say, we will sort of touch upon Huddersfield, but not really because there is... It's almost a given. Would you would you go along with that? Do you, do you feel like there's nothing that we can sort of drill down here? It's just that Liverpool must turn up. There's no sort of tactical pattern that they have to be wary of. There's no sort... It's just ultimately as long as Liverpool don't take this game lightly, which I don't think they will... And I know that's not a very sort of, uh, you know, analytical way of looking at it, but Liverpool are such a much better team than Huddersfield. Yeah, but you, you would never usually talk like this about an op- opposing team because it, doesn't, it seems quite naive almost. But in Huddersfield's case, I watched them last week against Spurs and it was before Spurs' big clash with um, City, I think. Mm-hmm. So they, out, they had all kinds of players rested. Foyth was playing. I think Walker Peters was playing. Yeah. Um, and Moro led the line, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, and he, he still managed to win. I think it was 4 0. 4 0. It was just, I think in Huddersfield's case, you know, tactics and work rate and endeavour can make up for it to an extent. But if your individual player quality is so low in comparison to opposing teams, you just, there's nothing you can do to an extent. If, if, you know, me and you and the lads from the Echo come up against a professional football team, no matter how much we grafted and no matter how much we knew about the tactical aspects of the game, you, you we would get beat mm. because we're not ultimately on their level. And Huddersfield, in terms of individual players, they, they're just not there. They're just not a Premier League team. They're, a, they're, they're almost a, a bottom half championship team. To be honest, they shouldn't even be in the top half of the mm. championship. They do well to come up to that extent. Uh, so from a Liverpool perspective, it's just about playing your own game. Um, focused, work as hard as the opposing team, nullify the counter-attacks, take risks in the right moments, and win. Be clinical. Um, and I think even at a canter, I think we could just 3-0 winners without even... You know, I mean, I don't want to say this, and then next week we end up, you know, drawing the game or something mad like that. But in Huddersfield's case, just just because of their individual player quality, there's, there's not a lot he can do. No matter that, this is why Wagner left halfway through the season because mm-hmm. no matter what he did, no matter how good the tactics were, how good the game plan was, how much the team worked, just the quality is not there. It's and and it 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 shows. So it's going to be quite the. Uh... The contrast, really, because on Wednesday, Liverpool play Barcelona in the Camp Nou. Uh, so from Huddersfield to Barcelona. Uh, we'll talk about that now because both me and Josh will be over in uh, Catalonia to, to, to uh, take in the sights and the, and the scenes. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about Barcelona now, Josh. Um, obviously, this is with the caveat. We don't know what's going to happen on Friday. Um, we don't know what's going to happen on Sunday with Burnley versus City, but that doesn't really matter in relation to this. Um, so Barcelona versus Liverpool, Camp Nou. It's going to be an absolutely amazing game, isn't it? You would hope. Yeah, this box office, I think. It's uh, it's the first time as well Klopp's faced Barca in a competitive match, believe it or not. Uh, Must be one of the last big teams he's not faced. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the Milan clubs, but I mean, they've not been qualifying, but you know, he's played them all, hasn't he? Yeah, and when you think about it as well, he's, I mean, in a way, his tactical philosophy, if you like, is ideally suited to playing a nice possession team and mm. that's what Barcelona have always been although they're very good at it so it'll be an interesting stylist, stylistic matchup you know they, they always say in terms of boxing styles makes fights mm. and that's that's kind of how this one's matching up two very different styles but both teams with very very high individual player quality so it'll be a be a really interesting match and there's a lot of tactical aspects to consider in this one as well well let's let's run through them then the first one that you mentioned um, and you wrote about last week when the draw when the draw was made when it was confirmed was how almost Liverpool are the perfect team to play Barcelona I mean is that literally a case of there will be space you look at the, the way they were opened up by Manchester United on the counter attack and you think that Liverpool will just be that little bit more clinical the fact that they might get caught in possession a lot. I mean, wh- why is that the case? Why are Liverpool so perfect to play Barca? Well, the analogy that I used at the time was uh, 
it's kind of scissors versus paper. Mm. Uh, just because, like, Barcelona are all about slow, patient build-up, um, gradually expanding your shape to break down the opposing team. And Liverpool, certainly against big opponents, and certainly in the Champions League, especially away from home, are about, you know, when you regain that ball, you quickly slice through the opponents. Uh, that, that transition game, if you like, uh, we've got the speed, the physicality, the tactical awareness, and that by now without doubt, and it could very easily be a case of forcing Barcelona into mistakes and just cutting through them. Um, I think if you look at Barcelona's uh, attacking line as well, which is a key a key point that I that I mentioned last week in the piece. They're relatively paceless, considering the team and the quality they've got there. If you consider Messi, uh, Suarez and Coutinho, they're, they're the three that started against United in both legs. There's not a lot of natural speed there. There's unbelievable individual technical quality, but none of them are fast. And that allowed United to, to push up higher than they usually would. And then... So, so that that kind of fostered compactness, if you like, around central areas, because if you push high up the field defensively, and your strikers are working hard in the defensive sense, you're going to be compact there, and then the space around the likes of Lionel Messi is going to be clogged, and he's going to have less space to work with, and the game becomes a bit, mm, a lot of mistakes, mm. things like that. Um, Balls ricocheting off shins, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and the way in which Barcelona combat that most weeks is by using their fullbacks. Jordi Alba is kind of their Andrew Robertson, if you like, mm. constantly bombing on, constantly using his pace in behind. But because Barca were up against Rashford, they didn't want to. Uh, Alba stayed fairly cautious um, just to provide that extra body to nullify counter-attacks. But then, as I said, if if you then if you if you instruct Albert to stay back, you lose that pace then. So you need to come push up. So there's lots of little tactical, almost like a chess match going on there. And Valverde himself, NS Valverde, you know the um, the Barca coaches tends to be a bit of a cautious coach anyway. He's a bit of a pragmatic, almost defense first mm. kind of man. Um, so it it wouldn't surprise me if coming up against Liverpool, being so wary of, especially Mohamed Salah, who's up on Alba's flank, it wouldn't surprise me if he did instruct Alba to be a bit more cautious like he did at Old Trafford. And um, that that then restricts Barcelona's pace. It restricts their, their, you know, their influence in behind our defence, which is fast anyway. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, just all the little tactical battles, strategic battles of it. Well, another little battle um, that I think will be very interesting is uh, Sergio Busquets and uh, uh, Roberto Firmino. Um, They'll sort of be in direct competition, won't they? Because obviously Firmino likes to drop off in that space where Busquets likes to drop into as well. So, I mean, how would you see that one going? And is that, again, one that Liverpool can, can exploit? Well, Busquets is described as almost inflappable. Um, but I watched the larger majority of both matches against United and he made a fair amount of mistakes. Yeah, I was going to say, he looked very flappable. Yeah, he did. He made a fair amount of mistakes, especially away. Um, and if we can entice him into certain pressing traps and if Firmino can impact him, then I can see us getting a bit of joy out of that, similar to how we got a joy out of uh, Fernandinho last season at Anfield in the Champions League. Um, so yeah, that'll be inter- it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out, but I'd say Firmino is the last, the last kind of opponent that Busquets would like to be up against. I mean, would, it sounds like Liverpool are going to win this 7-0. Um, so <laughs> I want us to sort of take our hats off at the, at the moment, so take, take those positive hats off. Uh, that's why I was pause. I was just thinking, you know, we, all we've done here is talk about Liverpool, absolutely, you know, how they are the perfect match. Liverpool can also be hit by Barcelona. And 
is there a little bit of a concern? I mean, we'll move on to the analytics of the mo- in the moment, but is there a little bit of a concern there that it feels like everybody's saying we're tailor made to, to absolutely batter Barcelona? We, you know, we could be in for a massive rude awakening come Wednesday night, especially a camp new first leg. Um, so, you know, I suppose the, the the next part is how how can Barcelona hit Liverpool? I mean, they can, and there's 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 one man in particular who can. But, you know, what are the things that Liverpool have, have got to look out for, you know, I suppose Lionel Messi aside? Well, I mean, from the strategic aspect, Liverpool have the edge by the looks of it. Just strictly on the chessboard, tactical battles and things like that, it looks like Liverpool have the advantage. Then, you know, individual player quality comes into it then. And you, you, you can't account for Coutinho scoring from 40 yards uh, you can't account for Messi taking on 7 players and scoring things like that and it, it takes me back it, 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 it very it reminds me a lot of the uh, the PSG games mm. earlier in the season we played them at home we played them away um, at home I felt like we dominated them I felt like they were barely involved but they scored 2 mm. then away from home I feel like, again, we didn't dominate them, but we, we played fairly well. And I deliberately looked into that match as well after it. This was back during the times where I was allowed to still post videos on Twitter. <laughs> then days are gone now, sadly. For now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when I could, I used to post analytical videos on Twitter. And at the time, watching PSG against Liverpool in Paris, I was baffled as to how PSG just seems to be... Re- be playing through our press. Uh, like the Neymar was just getting in behind and stuff like that all the time. So I looked into it, as I said, uh, to try and determine why. And Liverpool's pressing was fine for the most part. We pressed in numbers, pressed in groups, and it ultimately stemmed from individual quality and the likes of Neymar in particular and Verratti and Mbappe to an extent just being you know press resistance you, you, if you close these players down they will they'll just walk through you especially Neymar I was incredibly impressed with Neymar on the night because you can't you can't press this player into a mistake because he'll find a way through you he's got such good technical ability that he'll find a way through you and when I posted the video, it just demonstrated Liverpool's good pressing. But, you know, when certain players just step up to a level that you can't really, almost you can't defend against, they do get through it. And I think if you look at Barcelona, they've got numerous players that are, um, that you described as press resistance. You can't flap them. Messi, Coutinho, Arthur in midfield, Busquets to an extent. These are players that Semedo right back as well. He was very good at Old Trafford. These are players that if you do try and press and win the ball, or you try and force them into a mistake, or force them, you know, down a down an alleyway kind of thing, they find a way out. And that's my main worry, especially at the new camp, because it's a big pitch. Um, so I I I, don't, I never think that will press. A team into the ground. We're not that, we're not that naive. We're very calculated in the way we press, but that doesn't mean we won't press at all. We'll still try and regain the ball. We're still trying to f- try to play our own game to an extent. And my worry is, if we do that, and you know the individual level of Barcelona's players shows, they will find ways through that, like PSG did. And we lost that night in PSG. Obviously, we still managed to score though. So I think that on that night it finished two one, didn't it? Yeah, Milner Pem. Yeah. Would you take 2-1, Newcamp? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would myself. I'm not sure, but... I think, as I said, strategically, Liverpool are very well suited to play this team. But the individual level of Barcelona's players, you know, you can never bet against that. You mentioned Coutinho there, scoring uh, long ranges. It's a neat little uh, segue into... Something that we've actually spoken about, you know, in person when the the microphones aren't on... Um, Coutinho might not score a long ranger against Liverpool, might he, Josh? Because uh, you've got you've got a cracking stat about Liverpool this season. Is it Premier League only this, by the way? This is 
Premier League only. Because yeah. I've got a feeling yeah. Red Star, they might have had... They, I think they did actually yeah. thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, they did scream it. But I've got a lot of info on this. Uh, this is something I've been tweeting about a fair... Well, not a fair bit, but mm. I, did, I did, you know, I did delve into it a bit lately. Um, it's long shots, basically. Shots from outside the box. Now, in open play this season, Liverpool are the only team not to have conceded from outside the box. We've conceded one all season from, which I don't count personally, because A, it was direct from a corner against Burnley, and B, it was a foul mm. on Alisson. But it's counted nevertheless anyway. But anyway, we we don't seem to concede from outside the box, but frustratingly, in an attacking sense, we don't seem to score many either. Um, we're 10th in the league for goals scored from outside the box. With six, Spurs eleven, United eleven, Arsenal twelve, City thirteen, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea on nine. So we seem to be, you know, there seems to be quite a gap there in terms of scoring from outside the box. I don't know, for whatever reason, we we seem to have stopped doing it. And you you would naturally think, based on that, we're not shooting. We are shooting. Um, was sixth in the league for shots outside the box and 37.8% of our shots this season have came from outside the box. 34.7% for City, for example. So there's not a lot in that at all. 39.1% for Spurs, 40.7% for Chelsea, 42.6% for United. They're remarkable stats in, the, in, in themselves, aren't they, really, when you think about United's, like, nearly... Well, more than four out of their ten shots come from outside the area. Yeah, well, I think in Chelsea and United's case, they're the two top six teams mm. to be posting over 40% outside the box. I think that stems from basically don't, don't know how to attack mm. as well as Liverpool do and as, level, as well as City do. Certainly in Chelsea's case, they get frustrated when they reach the final player, so they just have a go. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one looking ahead to the summer because... You know, in terms of recruitment and things like that, you obviously want to build a team that can solve all kinds of different problems and you want to essentially add tools to a squad. And we lost our outside-the-box experts when we sold Coutinho. Um, I think I've got a little stat on that here. Hold on. No, I haven't. Salah has the most shots this season for Liverpool mm-hmm. from outside-the-box with 39. Um Another little note as well, funny little note. Most in the league with 65. Ruben Neves. Go ahead, Ruben Neves. But he's only scored twice. So so I voted in your Twitter poll. What did you um, vote? I voted no. You voted no? I voted no. Well, you're one of the 16% that have voted no. And I was going to mention that now, actually, because I've put, up, put that up on purpose because he's taken 63 shots from outside the box, as I say. He's only scored twice in the league. That's a goal every 33. That is some conversion rate, isn't it? That's a goal every 33 or 32 shots. Now, I had a little look back at Coutinho last mm. season. This is, I mean, he obviously left in January. Up until January, he'd already scored four from outside the box. Um, and in that period, he was averaging a goal every nine shots from outside the box. Neves is every 33. That's amazing. So the answer, which I'm going to tweet soon, is no, he's no. not. He's not <laughs> yes, good for me. It's, a, it's a, a media narrative, if mm. you like. And I think once it's... Because he scored spectacular. Like, the, we yeah, scored against Minilay, didn't he? You know, yeah. it's, it's... No, the wonderful goals. But he attempts an absolute ton. And that's why he scores well every now and then. And I think if you play for the top side, not that Wolves aren't a very good team, but yeah. if, you, if you play for a team with a lot of with more publicity, if you like, United, Liverpool, City, maybe. I think he'd get a lot more grief off, um, you know, the general, general fan bases because he's, I think from an analytics perspective, you know, analytics, a lot about analytics is about enforcing good decisions. Analytics in, in a football club allows good decisions to be made mm. um, more so than without. And, you know, if you're enforcing the likes of XG, shooting from outside the box, 
they're considered as low quality shots. That's why things like crossing has gradually diminished from the game because it's 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 there's low reliability there, and the same goes for shooting from distance. So for, for Nevers to have sixty three shots from outside the box. You think of how many possessions he may have wasted there. I was going to say, surely someone's having a word with him and going, Ruben, mate, stop, stop, stop it. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be fair as well, I mean, and it just shows you, I mean, I don't, we probably don't have these to hand, sadly, but this, this is just a hunch, intangible. Um, if, I mean, I always think back to that Burnley defeat in August 2016 where they continue all like 10 shots from outside the area. Yeah, and Yeah, when he was younger... It felt like he used to take shots when just for the sake of them, but it felt like towards the end of his Liverpool career, he'd be a little bit more selective. He still shoots a fair bit from outside the area, but it wasn't a case of cut inside on his right foot and pop one over the bar. It felt like they were with more intent. So, you know, is that just a young thing with someone like Neves? Um, you know, is it a case of the coaches, we'll just have to get it into him, look, Ruben, just, just stop it, you know? Yeah, I think it's just a player trait. I think mm. certain players just develop tendencies as they, as they get older and... Obviously, um, like say for example, Wilf Zaha, mm. he will dribble when he doesn't have to dribble, and that's just because he likes dribbling. That's just because it's it's just his game. But he doesn't always have to do it. He could make better decisions. He could dribble in better moments, but he chooses to dribble. You know, almost as a given. Neves obviously chooses to shoot when in certain situations mm. he shouldn't be doing so. Um, just a little note on last season as well regarding shots from outside the box and things. Last season, we finished joint second yeah. from goals outside the box. Uh, we scored 11. Spurs also scored 11. United scored 12. City scored 12. Four of our, four of our 11 came from Coutinho. So Two from Oxlade-Chamberlain? Possibly, yeah. Possibly. I mean, this is league oh, only. Our league only saw nothing. There was certainly yeah. the City home game, wasn't there, in the league? But. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just an interesting note yeah. regarding the summer if we are going to continue to squad build in the way that we have by just adding gradual tools, mm. we might want to add a player. Um, I was going to say, it, perhaps in the mould of like a James Madison, maybe you can offer a threat from outside the box, mm. a proper threat from outside the box. I wouldn't personally have James Madison top of my list, but this is a kind of, it's a trait that we, we maybe we'll start considering. Have you got a list of long-range shooters there or did you just sort of pick out Nevers? I've got a list in the top of my head if you want to ask. Yeah, just, just, for, just, 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 to, just to close, give us, give us those names. I'm just I'm just interested and maybe pull them on Twitter later as well. Um, well, and one interesting note based on... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see if you can get this. Go ahead. This season, over the course of a season really, it's quite... If a player takes 60 shots from outside the box in a season. That's a lot. Mm. Um, Nevers, top of the Premier League with 63. There's one player in Europe's top five leagues that's taken 91. He's out on his own, completely out on his own. 91 shots from outside the box. Second in Europe's top five leagues, he's on about 72. Then you've got the likes of Nevers all on the big 60 mm. group. But there's one player on 91. Do you play for a big club? Yeah, it's it's a, it was very surprising when I saw it. I was I was personally surprised, but then when you think about it, you think, Do you know what? I, I actually understand that. Is it Ronaldo? No. Is it Messi? It's Messi. Yeah. Is it Messi? Yeah. Messi with ninety one, and that stems from what I've just said before. We don't conceive from outside the box. Mm. Messi's ninety one shots from outside the box, which is by far and away the most. Um, and what I've just been saying about Neves in terms of. He seems to score every 33. Messi scores every 10. Um, I think he's taken he's taken 91 shots from outside the box. I think he's scored nine mm. in the league. It's a fairly decent record. They, they include free kicks, I assume. Uh, I'm not overly sure. that th th This is just a white scout metric mm -hmm. that just says outside the box. They also do a metric that says free kicks, so it might be separate. Mm. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that'll be an interesting little matchup for the Champions League. Because obviously Messi's coming up against Allison. Mm. One doesn't concede from outside the box and the other one scores a lot from outside mm. the box. And then you've got Coutinho on the opposite flank. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting little matchup now. Most definitely, just as a last closing note as well, you think how good Salah's goal must have been against Allison if he's beaten him top in there in the uh, 
Champions League uh, yeah. semi-final last season, which was basically a year ago this uh, this week. Josh, thank you very, very much for your time this week. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it as well, dear listener. Uh, we will be back post-Barcelona, uh, so uh, stick with us. We'll be there at the end of the week where we'll be looking back on uh, Huddersfield a little bit, uh, mainly on Barcelona, but also, of course, the uh, the trip up to Rafael Benitez's Newcastle. I'm sure there's going to be a hell of a lot we can get stuck into there as well. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Here's hoping, please, at some point, Liverpool can keep on winning and Man City can somewhere just drop a point somewhere. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Take care. Bye now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.